Welcome to McKinsey on Startups, a series focused on helping entrepreneurs and investors accelerate growth, brought to you by Fuel, the firm's startup practice. Each episode, McKinsey editor Daniel Eisenberg speaks with founders, investors, and industry experts to share the latest perspectives across borders and sectors. Hello, and welcome to McKinsey on Startups. I'm Daniel Eisenberg. On the face of it, collaboration between a nimble, high-growth startup and a large, established corporation seems like a good pairing. The capital-hungry startup gets the benefit of funding, as well as access to corporate resources and potential customers. The corporation gets insights into innovations and access to the technology and talent which have the potential to transform their industry. Judging by the sheer number of such engagements in recent years, that logic has been persuasive. Between 2013 and 2019, there was 32% year-on-year growth in corporate venture capital investments, and three-quarters of Fortune 100 companies now have active venture units. The reality, however, is making these marriages work can be very challenging, and the results have been decidedly mixed. Still, when done effectively, this kind of collaboration can be a huge boon for both sides of the equation. In a recent episode of the Inside the Strategy Room podcast, McKinsey partners Mao Wang and Tawanda Sabanda, along with associate partner Tobias Hens, joined host Sean Brown to talk about the keys to improving the odds of such partnerships and the pitfalls to avoid. We hope you enjoy their discussion and that you'll return for future episodes of McKinsey on Startups. Is the startup a value add to the corporate platform? Absolutely. If the question is more, you know, is the startup able to help the company get innovation and drive change management? The answer is no. Startups are busy trying to make their startup work. They do not have time to take on a second job as a change management professional in your corporation and somehow uh, move that ship. From McKinsey's Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. As you just heard from Mao Wang, one of our guests today, there are many misconceptions about what corporations and startups should expect from their collaborations. Yet these partnerships are only growing in importance as companies try to more quickly bring innovations to market in today's rapidly shifting business world. So how do you make these alliances between startups and corporates more effective? To answer this question, we're speaking today with three experts on innovation and partnerships. Mao is a partner in our Atlanta office, where he's one of the leaders in our innovation practice. He serves clients across a range of sectors on growth strategies, portfolio management, and ecosystem building. He's joined by Tawanda Sabanda, a partner in the San Francisco office and a leader of Leap by McKinsey, a new group within our firm that helps established and early-stage organizations build and scale new businesses. Tawanda also leads our fintech work with startups and their investors. Finally, we have Tobias Hens, an associate partner based in Munich, who is part of our advanced industries practice and who specializes in bringing together corporations and startups. Tobias, Tawanda, Mao, welcome. Tawanda, let's start with you. Why is corporate startup collaboration such an important topic right now? Thank you so much, Sean. At face value, you can see why corporate startup engagements make a lot of sense. You have, you know, on the one hand, startups that are capital strapped, that are nimble, that could definitely benefit from funding, corporate resources and access. And then on the other hand, you have corporates that are looking increasingly to innovate, stay ahead of their competition, stay ahead of disruption, access technology, et cetera. So it feels like a match made in heaven. 
we have seen a steady increase in corporate startup engagement over the last few years, right? If you look at uh, 2013 to 2019, there was a 30% plus, you know, year-on-year growth in CVC investment. When we survey, you know, hundreds of executives, 84% rank innovation as a critical growth strategy. If you look at the Fortune 100, about three quarters of them have an active venture unit. So there's, you know, there's, there's huge appetite and, there's, uh, and it's growing. And even if you look at COVID and its impact that, that it's had, the numbers are slightly depressed. I mean, I think in some places, VC is down by 10% or so. But in general, I think corporates need to prioritize innovation even more. Digitization, moving from physical to digital has really driven a lot of the need to innovate. And startups are facing some crunch in the VC market, and CVC is an alternative option to get funding. So I think, if anything, COVID has even put more of a spotlight on getting these partnerships right. And just to clarify for our listeners, CVC stands for Corporate Venture Capital. So how are these collaborations working out based on the research you've done with both startups and corporations? We're actually seeing mixed results at best. One data point we have is that many CVCs actually stop investing after two to three years. And uh, so they start with good intentions, but many stop investing uh, very quickly. And if you look at just satisfaction, uh, which often is a precursor for performance, only 28% of startups are actually satisfied within their corporate startup partnership. So that's 72% that could use some form of improvement. So given this need for improvement, but before we get into ways to improve these collaborations, can you just run through a couple of the motives that corporate players and startups have to partner together? I think understanding the incentives and the motives is a good point in getting to understand what, what's the root cause issue. And we see a few different criteria about why startups enter into, into these uh, partnerships in the first place. So, you know, it could be around getting access to the corporate partner's market. It often uh, is a positive signal to investors that you have a corporate partner. Uh, you may actually want to get the partner as a customer. You could want to access their data on customers and industry, et cetera. Obviously, there's a financing uh, need. And often you like to access their own development resources, their capabilities, both technical and, and sort of support function. On the corporate side, we often see the reasons around faster innovation. Often corporates look in their space and find startups that are ahead, and they find they can't keep up and they would like to actually bring that in-house. It could be about gaining early insights into experimental technologies, uh, new verticals, new segments could be also just about ways of working, you know, the idea that we want to transform how we work internally. We want to pick up more agile, uh, more remote working uh, in, in, in this context of COVID. And then access to top talent is often a, a rationale. And then again, there's a financial incentive as well. So in your experience working with large corporations, do you find that what they typically receive from their partnerships meet their initial expectations, at least in terms of their primary motivation? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I, I, I've seen obviously it go both ways. And I'll say the ones that are more successful, the corporates that come in with not just one singular objective, I think they're taking a holistic approach to that startup. And so there's, there's one primary objective that they're going in, but they are aware of the others as well, sub-objectives. And I think that allows them to be flexible. I think when it goes wrong, there's a singular objective, like we, all we want from this startup is talent. And uh, I think that sort of puts blinders on additional capabilities that the startup could provide. And often it frustrates the startup as well, because on the startup's end, 
you know, I think they see themselves as being able to provide multiple benefits to the corporate. And so being shoeboxed also, I think, uh, creates a bit more of a disconnect between the two. So I would say I've definitely seen that happen, but the, the successful corporates do come in with a clear objective, but are flexible and adaptable in how that plays out. Got it. And when you surveyed startups and corporations about what led them to enter into partnerships in the first place, did you find any big surprises? I think what is consistent is financing is not the top reason for startups. We found that actually quite surprising. I do often feel startups are cash-strapped. They're looking for funding. You would expect to see that uh, at least among the top two motives, right? And it's not. So I think that's, that's, that's interesting. The top motive on the startup side is, hey, we need access to the market of a corporate. The top motive on the corporate side is, hey, I need faster innovation and product development. Financial incentives are important, but they're definitely not the most important. Uh, and I think that's fascinating uh, and surprising for us. Thanks so much to Wanda. It's nice to hear that money, as they say, isn't always everything. So let's get back to some of the reasons why the results of these collaborations can actually be disappointing. Mao, you mentioned some issues that you see in your work with clients. Can you take us through a few of those, please? Uh, when we look across uh, the various startup corporate engagements that have been attempted, right, from uh, corporate venture capital units to accelerators, incubators, et cetera, there's five main themes we see that continue to be pain points. So the first is a lack of actual sponsorship and strategic buy-in. This happens quite a bit with corporate venture capital units. So what we sometimes find is, you know, this was a great idea started by the head of corporate development or the CFO or the prior CEO, right? And it's treated as a bit of a side project and it doesn't necessarily have the buy-in or the commitment from the full executive team. And this actually shows up in the resourcing as well, right? Because when we think about startups and corporates collaborating, it takes people from the startup and it takes people from the corporate to then work with those startups. And a lot of times those resources don't exist. And so then you end up with a really small investment team and startups trying to navigate the corporation themselves, right? And that's a bit of a challenge. Um, the second is the actual lack of strategic clarity and what you're trying to do. Uh, so, you know, if you're looking to get a foot into emerging technologies, for example, versus you're looking to replace a declining uh, core business and build the next $500 million of revenue, leads you towards very different mechanisms and very different capabilities needed to deliver on that, right? And oftentimes that isn't clearly defined. You know, cor many corporations know they need to innovate, know kind of what the trends and technologies are but haven't yet translated that to, okay, what does that mean practically for what we need to go do? And therefore, how can we leverage an external ecosystem to help accomplish our objectives? As we all know, corporates have fairly slow processes, right? And so when you bring in a startup, seeing businesses where the company says, great, um, excited to work with you, let us know what resources you need for the next year so we can work it into our quarterly budgets, right? That's just not how startups work and think. And so it becomes a bit of an inhibitor. And then when they actually go do stuff together, there's very little impact tracking we found. Um, corporates are great at basically measuring two things. One is as an institutional investor in a corporate venture capital, you have your standard portfolio metrics like you know, TVPI, DPI. Um, the company will then typically look at lagging metrics such as revenue and EBITDA. Right? But if you think about a company working with a early stage startup, the question you should not be asking is, you know, what's my revenue 12 months from now or what's my revenue 18 months from now? What you should be thinking about are 
strategic metrics tied to the value-added activity. And what I mean by that is if you are doing joint R&D, for example, you should be looking at the number of projects you have in the pipeline that you're working on together, the you know total adjustable market or potential of those projects. If you're doing a commercial pilot, you should be looking at how many customers have we taken this offering to, what is the success rate, et cetera, et cetera, right? These are leading metrics of activity that can let you gauge the success of your strategic rationale versus looking at lagging metrics of financial outcome. And finally, because a lot of what we've seen from the first four, you often get stuck in what the first two pilots are, right? And there's no real good path to scale, both in terms of the resourcing, the stakeholders, the buy-in, et cetera. You just kind of end up in a holding pattern and it becomes frustrating for a lot of the startups. Thanks, Mao. Um, you haven't mentioned this as one of the five issues, but is internal resistance to bringing in innovation from outside a factor? You know, uh, the cases where corporate managers may feel that they could develop or leverage in-house capabilities to create something similar so they don't really need to engage with startup partners. Yes, we've seen that in a few cases. And I think it's, it's more of a, you know, we don't need to necessarily invest in the startup or spend a lot of time because um, this stuff isn't that hard. But then where they fall down is not really on, we don't have the capability, is we're not putting the capabilities and the resources into it, right? And we're subjecting them to the same corporate processes. Uh, let me give you an example. There's a client we had who they were looking into investing in a startup that was kind of an adjacent revenue stream to what their core business did. And they thought they could actually develop it themselves. What they realized is their people couldn't get past, quite frankly, their day jobs and quarterly budgeting, right? They would put a team of five part-time people on it. Um, all of them had other things to do. And then when it came, you know, crunch time to meet quarterly numbers, they would then cut the budget and stop activity versus the startup has, you know, it's moving much, much more quickly. Hmm. Interesting. So do you have any data or thoughts on what stage of startup is best suited for collaboration with large corporations? Is it early or seed stage versus startups when they actually start to hit scale and become more growth plays? Yeah, I think it goes back to uh, the strategic objectives. If you're looking at uh, you know, adjacencies to your core business or go-to-market partnerships, you should absolutely look towards growth stage startups early stage startups that still don't have product market fit, that doesn't make sense for you to go blast out across your commercial network, right? However, growth stage startups are also much more expensive to participate in. And so if a company is looking at disrupting new technology, so a good example is there's a client we had that was a chemicals company, uh, water treatment. And a lot of that industry has moved towards uh, equipment doing water treatment and sort of as a service versus, you know, chemicals providers. And it didn't make sense for them to become equipment manufacturer, but they knew this was going to eventually take market share and disrupt their industry. And so they placed several bets in uh, early stage companies that were equipment manufacturers, right, which then hedged against the decline of their core business. In that case, if you're betting against an emerging technology and it's not an active value add collaboration, you know, you're a bit hands off, you're letting the startup run with it, could also make sense for early stage, right, because you're able to do, you know, maybe 10 bets for the price of one series B investment. That makes sense. Thanks. So let's dive into some of the do's and don'ts then. How do you recommend companies approach these collaborations to make sure that they get the most value out of them? Tobias, maybe you could start us off, please. Yeah, sure. Um, a couple of things that we've identified and we 
broadly think there's there's six pillars that you need to need to get right to get your corporate startup collaboration going and actually reap the benefits that uh, Tawanda introduced. Uh, there's a point around you need to bring your A team, and that goes for both the startup and the corporate. So what we've seen is um, two things that are super important and that drives, in this case, uh, startup satisfaction. You can drive it up by 93% if the partner, if the startup say, yes, my corporate partner is highly committed. And you can drive it up by 86% if uh, they see that also top management uh, is involved in the partnership. And this commitment and, you know, the involvement of top management is not just to have it as a pet project or sort of a marketing gap or something like that, but this is really active commitment and active involvement in the partnership. Um, also beyond uh, setting it up, but also even working with a startup. So what we've seen with one client is, for instance, in their corporate venture uh, a unit, they at some point started to dedicate, I think, half of the people away from doing deals or sourcing deals with startups to actually working with the startups in the day-to-day to actually get the value out. And this is what really what really drives uh, satisfaction then going forward. Sort of, I mean, that's on the corporate side. Uh, they usually have a lot of resources and just sort of you know, need to prioritize them correctly. On the startup side, bringing your A team and actually showing commitment, you could say is a given. But what we find is that it's actually not because there's loads of startups that then, you know, early on try to partner with a lot of corporates and then, you know, aren't capable of committing to each of those partnerships. So to the startups out there, I want to say be selective within the number of partnerships that you have than to go for too many too fast. So uh, the second thing is around that sort of big word of cultural gaps. And I mean, acknowledge they are there and there is no way around them. And they are there in sort of the culture of working, sort of the culture and methodology uh, and philosophy, I almost want to say, how products and technologies and you know, software architectures are set up. What we find is that merely addressing them openly and acknowledging that there are gaps and there might be problems in working together uh, and giving you best to working them out by sitting together and you know, talking about them openly um, already drives satisfaction up by 30%. So there's a little bit of an encouragement, even if you can't solve them, and you know, it's hard. And then the third point, know where you're headed and have concrete goals for your partnership. What we find oftentimes is that corporates or the startups run into something without actually having made up their mind what the value add is. It just, you know, kind of sounded cool and they wanted to try it and whatnot. And then they start and then they get, you know, stuck into the day-to-day before actually having had the chance of making up their mind what the success would be like. And then in the middle of the um, of the project, so the partnership, they get stuck for whatever reason, and no one really knows where to go or whether or not the partnership was a success, should be continued, should not be continued, or whatnot. And especially in crisis times, like we um, arguably have with Corona right now, what we find is then at that point, since no uh, goals and KPIs and metrics have been defined upfront, um, the corporate especially starts to measure the startup partnership by their useful quote-unquote KPIs that they use sort of, you know, for added contribution for the next quarter. Um, and, of course, that doesn't work. Then the startup partnership looks pretty bad, and we've actually seen sort of partnerships phase and programs end because, you know, for the lack of any uh, metrics agreed up front, they were measured against those, you know, day-to-day business metrics. So you absolutely uh, need to figure it out beforehand. Thanks, Tobias. Uh, generally, what types of value-add models do you see out there in the collaboration space? Mal? As a disclaimer, this, um, this is, you know, assuming the model is you are investing for strategic purposes, right? And just to be clear, that's not necessarily the right thing for everyone. 
There are plenty of corporate venture capital models, for example, in which they're effectively institutional investors, right, with good insight or institutional investors plus value-added services like access to corporate leadership, coaching, platforms, resources, et cetera. But we're talking explicitly about you are being very uh, discerning in which startup you're making investment in with the aim of an active collaboration, right? So as we think about what that value-add relationship is, the first one is basically your outsourced R&D model, right? Where the startup has a complementary capability or technology that the corporate is also looking at or considering. And this is, you know, a basically a build investor by decision, right? And it makes more sense to work with the startup than trying to do something from scratch. We have a commercial partnership, scale-up partner. This is more appropriate for later stage startups where you've got a proven market offering that you believe would be a great complement to your portfolio, or you could take to your customers, addresses, adjacencies, et cetera. And so this is about how do we work together and essentially be a commercialization engine, right? To help the startup grow bigger and faster and anchor customer supplier. So this comes in two flavors. The first, as we talked about earlier, is, you know, the startup actually does, uh, like, for example, analytics for operations, uh, digitization, um, you know, there's an start startup that uses machine learning for, uh, you know, oil and gas exploration, right? These are things in which the corporate is a customer. And so, therefore, it makes sense to partner because, one, you know, it's value add for the corporate and that it's driving cost efficiency or performance improvement. And, two, you're working closely to better tailor uh, the value proposition, right, and make the uh, offering even better. Um, you see the flip side of that, which is the corporate trying to do ecosystem building. And so this was, you know, the original thesis for Intel Capital, right, which is we're going to invest in startups that drive demand of our, you know, processors, right? So you can actually use this as a vehicle to create an ecosystem, which drives underlying demand for your products or platform or technologies. And the final one is, you know, hedging against disruption. These are typically a little more hands-off. Because the last thing you want to do is to invest in a startup that doesn't have direct value in that and try to get involved. Just quite candidly, you know, corporate managers are terrible at running startups. And if you want to, you should acquire it. If you're not acquiring it, uh, let it do its thing, right? Um, but it's also important here in that this has a certain piece of your portfolio, right? And so you need to be also very explicit, you know, if we're making some of these bets or hedges, is that you know, 10% of our discretionary cash? Is that 10% of our portfolio, right? Uh, what allocation do we want to make in context of the whole thing? You don't want this to be the only thing that you're investing in. Thanks, Mao. Uh, Tobias, back to you. You were talking earlier about the importance of the right metrics. What are some of the metrics that corporate startup partnerships should be tracking? And do you have any recommendations for how to do that with the minimal amount of bureaucracy and cost? Yeah, I want to say it boils down to what you wanted out of that partnership in the first place huh, to figure out which are the right metrics. Uh, and then, I mean, I think sort of typically you, you take metrics where you will see changes early and that you can rather directly influence, like the growth in customer numbers or what have you, if you really wanted to, you know, access a different uh, segment, right? And ultimately you want... Um, you want KPIs that the startup should care about anyway. And if they don't, then that's sort of a great innovation theme for them as well uh, to sort of professionalize around sort of tracking their growth and uh, whatever it is, right? So I would actually say it should take you zero overhead to figure out if the partnership is actually set up in a way that it makes sense to figure out if your metrics are going in the right direction, right? Thanks. Tawanda and Mao, anything you'd add on the metrics point? 
Yeah, I think the thing I'll say with metrics is it's it's really taking the lens of the startup type metrics. I think corporate metrics tend to not work as well. You know, EBITDA contribution, you know, these large scale metrics. I think what you're looking for typically, if you take the consumer angle, is you know, customer acquisition, customer level economics, uh, is each customer lifetime value, and often that's a little bit of a shift for corporates. So this is actually an opportunity to partner with the startup, learn a little bit from them in terms of what they track, and start to systematize a few metrics. Uh, as part of the the partnership success, the last thing I would say is um, you know the met learn from uh, venture investors right to Tobias's point the metrics there are specific metrics that are shared across the industry and in how you evaluate the health of a startup those are well known and you should be using those to evaluate your portfolio companies you should have enough. Uh, you know, whether principals or MDs or whatever, your corporate venture fund, et cetera. So they're not stretched super thin across 20 companies each, right? If I think about, you know, a good rule of thumb, something like maybe five, no more than eight companies per, call it MD. Um, those people should have their thumb on the pulse of what's going on and know, like, this is not working. This is working. You know, does the startup still have a path to scale up with the way we expect it to, right, and do what we want it to do, and so therefore, should we continue to invest or stop, right? It's a very holistic assessment. Um, where I think this gets lost is the corporates try to find these roll-up dashboards, right? So I have a portfolio of 30 companies. Give me a simple one-page dashboard to tell me how my portfolio is doing, and it's not that simple a conversation. It's a very nuanced conversation, right? So there's a bit of a culture shift, too, in terms of how the corporation needs to think about evaluating both the startups and their joint activities. I, I love what you said, right? Because that comes back right into the heart of what we talked about in those partnerships, right? No one size fits all, right? There is no dashboard that will track all of your startups in the same way because, you know, needs to be individualized partnerships that, you know, each make sense for their own reason. Thank you. Um, so what's the next recommendation or pitfall that potential partners should address? So the pilots are often too small, not scaled up. And really what that means is finding uh, the right size pilot where you're doing something that proves a concept can scale and then leads to scale becomes incredibly important. Sometimes they don't think about that full path, right? And they, okay, here, we're going to run four or five different experiments you know, with R&D. Here's interesting technology. Here's a use case that worked, et cetera. But they don't think about that full pathway across the development life cycle, right? So it's finding... The, the right pilot, which gives you uh, the confidence, right, that you've got a good proof of concept. Again, thinking through the startup milestones and the way venture investors think, right, that you've got product market fit, et cetera, and so that these are being done in service of de-risking and proof points that then give you the ability to move on to something bigger. Uh, Mao, earlier Tobias talked about the culture gaps that often exist between corporates and startups. Can individual relationships between representatives on both sides help to bridge some of those gaps? Right. The individual partnerships are actually quite important. Uh, it's not just the corporate and the startup. It's, you know, the people in the corporate working with uh, the people in the startup. Some research uh, a couple of years back analyzed, you know, what makes uh, cross-functional teams effective. And the number one factor was the team members liked each other. Right. And so it's actually a bit challenging in a pandemic, but it's incredibly important not to overlook here, particularly when you think about corporates investing in startups that are often in a different city, sometimes in a different country. 
than where a lot of their headquarters and employees are based, right? Um, so don't overlook the individual part. Speaking of the challenges the pandemic has brought, Mao, what are you seeing in terms of how the partners are dealing with or overcoming the lack of in-person FaceTime? Has this been a big challenge in terms of creating and sustaining remote collaborations? Um, some of the things we've seen, honestly, it's, it's been helpful because previously, I think folks that were remote, and this is largely driven by the corporates, were feeling left out, right? If you think about how many meetings you've had where the people in the room were in active discussion, there was a phone in the corner that could kind of hear half the conversation, but not really, and no one can hear what you're saying. I mean, you, you were considered an afterthought in many cases, right, if you were not in the room. And I think this pandemic has forced everyone to, um, you know, collectively figure out how to work remotely, which now, which means you're not in the room, uh, you're still very much a participant, right? So now you're able to bring cross-functional folks together from wherever they might be um, and actually have a much more effective uh, meeting and working session than you normally would, right? So I think that's been a benefit. The flip side is obviously, you know, there's Zoom fatigue, right? I think some of the ad hoc interaction that may happen just has sort of disappeared. Um, and so it's been a balance. Yeah. And, and if I may sort of offer an additional sort of maybe in European perspective to that, right? You know, we used to fly over the big ponds to get to the U.S. and meet people quite a lot, which, you know, uh, loads of costs, loads of sort of red-eye flights and, and everything with that, right? So what we've actually seen here is that the that the ecosystems of the, I think, by now also mature in Europe um, and the U.S. are coming much closer together, right? We see much, much, many more deals of, you know, American capital being invested into European startups and vice versa, right? So I think in that sense, actually, the pandemic of also has brought down some borders. So nice to see that the uh, increase in virtual connectivity has actually had some upside. So we also discussed the importance of making these partnerships individualized. I think that brings us to the last pillar of the six that Tobias mentioned, and I believe that one covers the operating model. Mao, do you want to take us through that? There are many ways to innovate, right? Startup collaboration is one of them. Um, and in fact, when we look at what the best innovators do, there's interplay between both internal and external things. And so what that requires is actually an overall operating model where you have the full view of, okay, this is my innovation strategy, right? Here are the opportunity areas that I'm going after that I believe we want to play in the future. Um, what are the insights in terms of trends, in terms of customer insights that are going to feed into ideas? And then you actually have a portfolio management process that looks across uh, and if you don't, sometimes you end up with a lot of inefficiency. So a great example is there was a uh, chemicals company which, um, you know, they were looking at a certain uh, new bio, biotech, essentially. They had two projects in their R&D pipeline. They invested in a startup against that area, and then they licensed a competitor's mo molecule in Europe against that area. So now you have three disconnected groups piling onto the same thing. And so it's important to make a holistic resource allocation across the bets you're making, not each silo kind of doing its own thing. And when you look across the portfolio, you're overweighted in certain places, or in some cases, actually creating conflicts of interest, and you're underweighted in other places. And then when it comes time to build again, you've got internal R&D teams, you've got startup collaboration through CBC or Accelerators, and you've got actually M&A as a tool. The best use this as a continuum, right? You may be building something internally, and you find a piece of technology or capability needed for it that exists in a startup. 
And so it could make sense to acquire that. As an example, when Amazon was building the Kindle, uh, they acquired a startup that had the movie file format, right? They didn't engineer it themselves from scratch. Um, they acquired the touchscreen technology, right? They brought in Goodreads, things like that. So there's actually an ecosystem in play where it may make sense to acquire pieces of technologies or capabilities, not whole businesses, as you're also building things yourself. And the flip side of this is also we've seen a lot of corporates will say, you know, I want to add the next billion dollars of revenue or I want to find my next unicorn or whatever that huge aspiration might be. How do I do it with my corporate venture capital unit or with my accelerator? And the answer is going back towards multiple lines. You need an internal capability if you're trying to do something that big, right? External is a tool, uh, but it's not the only tool you should use. And in some cases, it's not a sufficient tool. Okay, so what value does an internal corporate accelerator play in these startup corporate collaborations? Do they help them? And, and how should corporations go about identifying startups for their accelerators if, if they are, in fact, beneficial? Um, we've seen uh, a lot of accelerators be pretty short-lived, right? I think when accelerators go well and you're getting the value, it's very similar to a disciplined corporate venture capital approach, right? You're taking equity in a particular company, aiming to do a particular thing. I think the struggle with accelerators is, first of all, you have to manage a cohort, right? Because it's a program of companies coming in and then they go through this. So it's a lot more resources, which the corporate already doesn't have. And quite candidly, you know, those resources are probably better um, dedicated towards the value added activities with specific companies than towards kind of program management of a giant portfolio of companies. And I think secondly, you know, there's a lot of noise, right? I think the pressure of, uh, you know, the six months plus, um, you know, all the applicants coming in, it just it creates a lot of stuff to sort through. And I think it actually drives some partnerships that probably shouldn't exist, right? Because you almost feel like something should be happening given the activity. But the reality is, you know, you should actually be more selective in who you eventually invest in partner with. Got it. So what about accelerators that are independent, um, offering similar types of resources to startups that a corporate partner might? Do you find that they bring much value to ultimately what might become a potential corporate partnership? To me, the third-party accelerator is almost worse because you, I mean, they do a great job for, you know, in their own right in that space. But I think for the corporate, in terms of driving the discipline and clarity, now you are one more step removed, right? And you're starting to outsource your thinking and your judgment to another party who may not know your strategy as well. And so I, I think you'll find the results to, you know, not be as sharp. And quite candidly, it's not going to solve your innovation problem. Like if I take a step back, the real resolution to most corporates innovation problem is having some form of internal innovation capability, Right. Um, but, you know, they're hesitant to invest the people and they're hesitant to invest the resources. And so they look outwards as sort of a uh, cheaper, faster way to get it. Um, but it's not going to get you there. Right. It's a compliment. But there's got to be something internally for us to latch onto. And so whether it's Accelerate CBC or whatever it is, you're using to pull in startups. Uh, your own folks have got to be doing something down that path of innovation to which it can plug into. So how often do you see startups enabling corporations to move beyond their own traditional turf? For example, uh, partnerships with Internet of Things and AI startups that are helping insurers venture into affinity distribution or health and wellness. I think it's a great question. I think, I mean, um, guys, please jump in, right? Because 
And the experience, I mean, there's, of course, always lighthouses out there, right? But the way that I would say innovation works and uh, building no new products works and, you know, digitization works and whatever the buzzword is uh, that you use for the transformation you want to undergo, then A, you really need to have an internal why, which you cannot externalize to just simply one startup. And B, you need to start with something that's super tangible. Yeah? And I think for that, startups are great, right? To sort of create a lighthouse around what you could do in you know, digital insurance, autonomous driving, mobility as a service to sort of go to my core industries, but you know, also in all of the others. But it's not just going to transform your company uh, by having that one startup interaction, right? It can be sort of a great first lighthouse that everyone sees, but then there's a lot more to actually get the company going after that. Yeah, I've, um, and I've definitely seen examples of, of, of this work in financial services. I've seen a few, I've worked with a few more traditional banks that have partnered with the startup to get into a new segment. So I had one client that wanted to get more into sort of the youth and millennial segment. And so they partnered with a solution that was almost an e-commerce offering. And they used that to start to build some penetration there. And then they backed it up with their banking products, uh, lending products, et cetera. And I've also seen some use it to offer a completely new digital interface that's faster, better, et cetera, than what they have today. I think in both cases, what made that successful, it started with very clear insights and strategic pushes that they were trying to do, a good clarity of the segments that they had, and then an understanding of you know which startups are showing great assets and capabilities in that space that they then went to partner with. And I think the second thing that they did well is then build that startup into their infrastructure, both technically so that they could add to it, they could integrate their uh, banking products uh, with that startup, et cetera, and also from a people perspective, so they could scale and support it uh, as it naturally scaled, right, uh, to meet the, the customer demand. So it wasn't like a side thing that they hoped would suddenly give them access to a market or access to a segment. It was something that they pulled in for technical capabilities uh, and, a, and a kernel of a great you know, offering, and then they built around that. And just to be clear on, uh, you know, maybe two flavors of the question, right? With the, is the startup a, you know, value add to the corporate platform? Absolutely. Every, echo everything my colleague said. If the question is more, you know, is the startup able to help the company get innovation and drive change management? Uh, the answer is no. Right. The close running startups are busy trying to make their startup work. They do not have time to take on a second job as a change management professional in your corporation and somehow uh, move that ship. Final question. Do you have any perspectives on industries that are particularly well-suited to corporate startup collaborations or others that tend to be somewhat less so? That's a good one. That's an interesting one, actually. I would say there are industries, for instance, that are highly regulated and that sort of, um, there's loads of requirements that you will, will need to fulfill uh, to be able to actually bring a product to the market. But then also that tends to correlate with dire need for innovation where, you know, actually a startup that, you know, thinks out of the box and just drives things without sort of the risk of having a huge corporate business to take care of. I do a lot of work in what we call the advanced industry. So your classical high-tech industries, automotive and uh, all of the above. And that's also actually an you know, excellent example. Of course, they are super established industries and they're the startups might be far away, and of course, there's huge processes, but that's also usually the points where you know, if you actually go for it, uh, there's incredible value in these partnerships. I would say there's also 
a mix in terms of the value created, right? So if I look at something like pharma, that's a pretty clear mature model, right? In which a lot of it is outsourced R&D technology, et cetera. And there's a clear linkage between the startups and when the corporate uh, adds value and commercialization. Tech obviously is fairly mature. I think as we move further upstream, looking at chemicals, industrials, uh, energy, you will see some things, particularly around specialty chemicals and utilities, where they're starting to build that muscle and learning. When you get so far upstream, when we're talking commodity chemicals, I think there's not as much experience because they're really far back from the customer, right? So the corporates are asking, um, you know, what's, what's the point of doing this? But at the same time, I think there's a lot of value to be created where, you know, if you think about uh, digitization or analytics for operational improvement, uh, risk management, et cetera, right? There's... It's not just customer-facing, it's internal-facing use cases that make sense. And then finally, if you look at consumer, that's an interesting one where there's a lot of activity, so it looks like it's fairly mature, but when you look under the hood and look at performance, I think the jury's still out into who's actually delivering shareholder value, right? Because I think some companies, when you look at their portfolio, it's probably best described as brand roulette, and we're not sure if it's delivering the returns that uh, they set out to. Tobias, Tawanda, and Mao, thank you so much for taking the time with us today. This has been a fascinating discussion, and we hope all our listeners enjoyed it as well. Just a reminder, we'll include a link to a recent article that Mao, Tobias, and Tawanda recently wrote on this topic in the description of today's podcast. You can also find the transcript of our conversation on the Inside the Strategy Room page on McKinsey.com, where you may also easily explore, filter, and search our library of more than 50 previous episodes. If you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast, please email us at Inside the Strategy Room, all one word, at McKinsey.com. Finally, if you'd like to receive alerts on our latest insights, you can sign up on our podcast collection page on McKinsey.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MCKStrategy or connect with us on LinkedIn on the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again soon inside the Strategy Room. This has been McKinsey on Startups, hosted by Daniel Eisenberg. We welcome your feedback, so please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Hope you join us next time for more broad global perspectives on the challenges and opportunities for accelerating growth. Thanks for listening.